Hare Krishna. Slowly, slowly.
I go a payment and Sri Chitanya Manupistam Stapidam Yenubuttali 
So first of all, I'm very happy and honored that I have an opportunity to visit you here in Dallas. It's my first time that I'm here and Dallas Temple is one of the first temples that Prabhupada established. There's so many letters where Prabhupada is instructing the Dallas devotees about the Guru call and so on. So it is just very, very wonderful for me to finally get an opportunity to visit you here. And I am simply hoping and praying that I will not only eat and sleep here, but also offer some little service. <laughs> so, since it is my first visit, maybe I will briefly introduce myself. So, my name is Devaki Davidasi. I am originally from Germany, but I left Germany already in 84. So, I have actually never lived there as a devotee. I traveled all over the world looking for a higher purpose to life. And then finally, I met the devotees in Australia in 1985. So I was a disciple of Bhavananda. He was the Zonal Acharya in those days. Then later, I took reinitiation of His Holiness Prabhu Vishnu Swami, now Prabhu. And then I took one more time, a third time, initiation of His Holiness Naranjana Swami. And all these three gurus actually were the perfect guru at the time. So my whole life would have gone completely different if I hadn't taken shelter of those personalities. So there is no hard feelings or regret or anything. It was all perfect for me. So, and I spent four years in Sydney in the Brahmacharini Ashram getting the training in all the basic aspects of devotional life. Then I was also married for 10 years. And in those 10 years, by Krishna's arrangement, we somehow established the first more organized temple in the former Soviet Union, which was a whole big adventure. It was in, from 89 to 99, so it was just when the whole... Uh, communist system fell apart there and we were just there somehow at the right time and it was very dynamic and I learned so many things. So, and then 99, my former husband decided to take a break from Krishna consciousness. So these things do happen. So, and yeah, he left Krishna consciousness. We married a non-devotee and, you know, he's still up to this day not so much practicing really. So, and since 99, I'm basically living out of a suitcase and I'm traveling all the time and preaching and I spent five months per year in India, in Bangladesh and seven months per year all around Europe 
I like to be in Eastern Europe. I spend a fair bit of time in Ukraine, in Moldova, in Slovenia, Croatia. There's so many countries there. And also Switzerland and London and Germany a little bit also. And yeah, recently I started to go to North America. So this is my second visit to North America. Last year I came first time. And I had a pretty nice time, so I decided to come back one more time. So, and I have two, two, uh, topics which I really feel such a great urgency to talk about. That's for once the holy name. I like to conduct holy name retreats. So every year over Christmas, I have a holy name retreat in Ekachakudam, Nityananda's birthplace. Very sweet and deep experience. And also in other parts of the world, I like to have holy name retreats. So I'm convinced that we don't make enough efforts actually to get to deeper levels of understanding how we are meant to chant in Japa as well as in Kirtan. We take this very lightly and superficially. And then we don't get really the benefit and which the holy name uh, can bring. So that's one topic, and then the other topic I like to talk about is the topic of spiritual culture. Um, Bangladesh is a very unique place. It's like a special, a separate planet there. <laughs> it's East Bengal. Most of Mahaprabhu's associates come from that part of the world. So there is um, such a strong heritage of spiritual culture there, even Jagannath Mishra Sachimata, they come from what is today Bangladesh. And because it is a Muslim country, that actually preserves our Vaishnav culture, amazingly. Because the Muslims are not so fond of all the modern Kali Yuga ideas, so it has kept that part of Bengal very traditional, very cultured. And for the last 20 years, I have spent quite a bit of time there in the beginning, three, four months per year, now a little less. And I have learned so many things there because when I'm there, I'm only with the locals. There's no Western devotees living there because it's a little bit more austere. It's like India 50 years ago or something. So, and... Yeah, I, when I lived there, I, you know, I'm only with the locals, I travel with them, I preach with them, I eat with them, I live with them. And I have seen how, how this Vaishnav culture is actually meant to be lived. And that has really transformed my personal practice and also my preaching. So much so that five years ago I, made some humble attempt, I inaugurated an institute for spiritual culture. I have put over the years all different courses together, and, well, one of them, we have a little introduction on this on Saturday from 2 to 6, sheltering relationships, giving shelter, accepting shelter, basically the importance of having a mentor and becoming a mentor, this is very much connected to the topic of culture. We will discover that for those who will take part. And I have also made a humble attempt to put two books together. I brought a couple with me just to show you in case you will be interested. 
One of them is built to culture Krishna's divine system. Very thought-provoking. There's a lot of, yeah, I'm questioning so many modern attitudes and ideas. Basically, we can say our disease today is that we think our system is so much better than Krishna's system. And therefore, we get so many reactions to that and in form of social disturbances and problems, you know, divorce, single motherhood, violence towards women, child abuse, all these things have no place in Krishna's system. But in our days, unfortunately, they are part of daily life. And the book is all about um, the powerful and important role we women are meant to play, actually. Prabhupada says we are meant to be the power of inspiration to men. So, and it's all based on what Prabhupada says in the Bhagavatam, so it's not just what the Vaki Madhuji thinks or something, but it's all based on Prabhupada. And the other book is called Sheltering Relationships. That's the complete course which we will um, uh, introduce on Saturday. So there the point, the essence is that unless we have a mentor, a trusting, confidential, sheltering relationship, very, very difficult to make advancement actually. We've lost so many devotees over the last 50 years because we have not deeply understood this. And also unless we become mentors ourselves one day and we are willing to sacrifice our energy and our convenience for the sake of uplifting young devotees, our life will be superficial. We will remain Kanishtas. Yes, so very highly important and relevant topic. So um, I hope you will have some interest in this and take a book at some stage. So I will be... I will be around, so whenever I give something somewhere, I will have some books with me. So for a donation of $10, I'll be happy to put them into your hands. Okay, so much as introduction. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So we have verse 21 on the board and that's actually perfectly Krishna's arrangement because even though we read that verse yesterday I was actually planning to go back to that verse and talk about that a little more. (laughs) And because the other two verses, there is not much purport and not much really for me to talk about. And rather than going on and starting the next chapter, I will leave that to the speaker tomorrow and we will just conclude this chapter. Okay. Viramitta yadatitam Viramitta yadatitam Hitvaviti tayam svayam Hitvaviti tayam svayam 
Somebody wants to chant. Ladies. Virat meta meta desists yada when chittam the mind hitva giving up vititayam the functions of material life and the three phases of awaking sleep, oh sorry, of awa- of waking sleep and deep sleep. Looks like I'm not quite awake yet. Svayam, automatically. Yogina, by regulated spiritual practice. Va, oh, tada, then. Atmanam, the Supreme Soul. Veda, he knows. Ihayaha, from a tear endeavor. Nivatate, he sees us. Translation. Either automatically or because of one's regulated spiritual practice. One's mind may stop functioning on the material platform of waking consciousness, waking consciousness, sleep and deep sleep. 
Then one understands the Supreme Soul and withdraws from material endeavor. Purport by Shlopopat's faithful servant. As stated in Srimad Bhagavatam 32533, Bhakti, devotional service, dissolves the subtle body of the living entity without separate endeavor, just as fire in the stomach digests all that we can eat. The subtle material body is inclined to exploit nature through sex, greed, false pride, and madness. Loving service to the Lord, however, dissolves the stubborn false ego and lifts one to pure blissful consciousness, Krishna consciousness, the sublime perfection of existence. So I'll read the other Two or how many verses? Yeah, I'll, I'll finish the chapter and then we go back to that. Next verse. Sages, expert in ancient histories, have declared that the Puranas, according to their various characteristics, can be divided into 18 major Puranas and 18 secondary Puranas. No purport there. And then 23 and 24. The 18 major Puranas are the Brahma, Padma, Vishnu, Shiva, Linga, Garuda, Narada, Bhagavad, Agni, Skanda, Bhavishya, Brahma, Vivata, Markandeya, Vamana, Varaha, Matsya, Koma, and Brahmanda Puranas. Purport. Srila Jiva Goswami has quoted from the Raha Purana, Shiva Purana, and Matsya Purana in confirmation of the above two verses. And then the last verse. I have thoroughly described to you, O Brahmana, the expansion of the branches of the Vedas by the great sage Yasadev, his disciples and the disciples of his disciples, one who listens to this narration will increase in spiritual strength. Thus ends the purports of the humble servants of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, to the 12th canto, 7th chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, entitled The Puranic Literatures. So this whole chapter basically deals, in essence, with all the different branches of the Vedas, the compiled lies, the, the Puranas, the whole list of the 18 Puranas we just read. So for devotees, we can say it, it's a little, a touch dry and technical actually, such kind of chapters. Throughout the Bhagavatam, we come quite across such chapters, a few of those, where there's just all, you know, different different lineages, dynasties, who married whom and what were their offspring and, 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 and. And we might ask ourselves, well, why, why is this there in the Shastra? So basically, according to my understanding, this really establishes the authority, the authenticity of the scriptures 
as, as two authorities. That it is not just some mythology, some stories or something, but that it all actually happened. It's all historic accounts. And yeah, that makes it more authoritative. I remember very clearly when I just started reading, uh, you know, the Bhagavatam and, and, and Bhagavad Gita, it left quite a deep impression on me that I thought, wow, you know, so obviously this must be all true. Otherwise, who would take even the, the energy and time to make up all these names, right, and all these dynasties? Who, who would, who, who, who would be bothered to do this? So obviously, it is all an historic account. It is actually all, all authoritative. So in, in order to get this point across, you know, that's why we have such kind of chapters which deal with all kind of technicalities of the scriptures and dynasties and, and, and. So, because I mean, Krishna still gives the non-believer the choice to think that, you know, Krishna's pastimes is just mythology. They're just stories. They never happened. You know? So, alright, that option we still have. But to those who, who want to get some deeper insights and who have some little faith there, initially at least, you know, for them, it establishes, you know, the authority of and the authoritativeness of of the Shastra, which is just so important for us to, in order to make advancement that we accept authority. So that much just in general about the whole chapter. So as I mentioned, I'd like to go back to this verse number 21. I read one more time the translation. Either automatically or because of one's regulated spiritual practice, one's mind may stop functioning on the material platform of waking consciousness, sleep and deep sleep. Then one understands the supreme soul and withdraws from material endeavor. So in my special attention caught, you know, a couple of points in the purport First of all, the translation is given from 325.33. Bhakti, devotional service, dissolves the subtle body of the living entity without separate endeavor. So, I mean, first of all, that's a very important point to understand. How, how really this process of bhakti is directly targeting the subtle body of mind, intelligence, false ego. It's directly targeting that. Because in order to get out of here, the subtle body has to be transformed, has to be fully spiritualized. All the material aspects have to be almost deleted and replaced with spiritual aspects. If that doesn't take place at the moment of death, subtle body takes the soul to the next ghost body. No other way. No, no, no way around it. So we have to transform and spiritualize the subtle body. And this is not such an easy thing. I mean, it says, without separate endeavor. 
And then later on it says, Loving service to the Lord, however, dissolves the stubborn false ego and lifts one to pure blissful Krishna consciousness. So, I mean, I would dare, I dare say, without endeavor is only if we actually apply the process properly. But there is so many subtleties to it. There's so many subtleties to it. And we do have to make an endeavor to actually apply the whole process in, in the right balance and with all the subtleties. Otherwise, it will not happen just automatically. That's my strong realization and conviction. And especially regarding the false ego, the stubborn false ego, when I read this, I couldn't resist to go back to this verse because I do have a whole seminar on the false ego, a 10-hour seminar. Because I started understanding in the name of Krishna consciousness, very easily we can do the opposite of what we should be doing. We can actually blow up and increase the false ego. It, it, um, and instead of dissolving it and subduing it, it's massively going on. Krishna consciousness offers so much opportunity for this. And when I started realizing that, I thought, wow, you know, this topic of false ego deserves as a whole separate seminar, separate course. We just had it in Houston, actually. So if you're interested, you find it somewhere on the net there, also on my website. I have a recording of it. I mean, that seminar has helped me so much to discover how my false ego is constantly harassing me and taking me for a ride and making me do things and say things which I shouldn't do and shouldn't say. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I call the seminar... The false ego, our constant companion and troublemaker. Because that's exactly what it is. False ego constantly entangles us and, and pushes us to do things and say things which we actually shouldn't do. And interestingly, of course, the chanting of the holy name is one major aspect of dissolving the false ego. But unless we also parallel work in subtle ways on following Vaishnava etiquette and culture, then our chanting is almost like an elephant taking bath. After an elephant takes bath, what does he do? He takes the trunk full of dust and throws all the dirt back on his back. And that's exactly what very easily goes on in our life, that all right, we try our best to chant, but then we always fall back into all kinds of false ego patterns of behaviors. And we are stuck in there. And we don't move forward. And that's exactly why Vaishnava etiquette and culture is of such great importance. Because Vaishnava etiquette and culture is designed in a practical way 
how to get us out of these ego patterns of behaviors, how to dissolve the ego, whereas material life and materialistic culture is designed for the opposite. Material life is all about showing off, being the center of attention. You know, I'm so great, I'm so important, I'm so unique. We want to bring attention to ourselves in so many ways, trying to be it, you know. Yes. So that's what material life is propagating, and materialistic culture is heavily, you know, promoting that, you know. I mean, in material eyes to become successful, it depends how expert we are in showing off. The more we show off, the more successful we become materially. Whereas spiritual life is completely targeting the opposite mood. You know, we want to actually uh, recognize our tiny insignificant position of being humble servant of the servant of the servant. You know, that's where we want to get at. Not, oh, I'm so special and look at me and, 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 you know. So just chanting the holy name without Vaishnav etiquette and culture, we are not going to get there. Apart from the fact that we won't even be able to truly chant the holy name. That's why Mahaprabhu says, Sinada Pisunitana. You know, we can actually chant the holy name only really deeply, prayerfully, helplessly, if we are humble than a, more humble than a blade of grass and more tolerant than a tree. You know? Yes. So, both have to go parallel. If we only follow Vaishnava etiquette and culture and we don't chant the holy name, that also will not do the job. So both tracks are needed, you know, to move forward, back home, back to Godhead. Yes. So this is really, I mean, it took me many years to really understand this. And, yeah, that's why I felt inspired to arrange this whole separate discussion on the false ego because it is so subtle, so subtle. And interestingly, the bigger the false ego is, the less we notice. That's another interesting phenomenon, you know. Yes, yes. I was once, I had this situation in Europe. There was one Madhuji who, oh, she, you know, she has such a prominent ego there and she gets herself always into conflicts and miseries and troubles. And she was depressed one day and she kind of turned to me a little bit and I thought, all right, let me try and help her to understand what, what the problem is. So, and I was just very carefully hinting, saying, well, you know, if our false ego just always gets into our ways and and creates miseries for us. And you know how she responded? She was laughing it off. She was saying, what? False ego? Come on, what's that? I don't have that. That was her response. I don't have that. Come on, let's be serious. False ego, what's that? That was her response. And I was, I was shocked. I was thinking, my God, how is it possible that a person is so tormented by the false ego and she thinks it's, she doesn't have one. My God, I was completely flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say. And all I could answer was, 
Well, I wish I could say that. False ego, I don't have that. I wish I could say that. That's all I said. I didn't say more than that, you know. But it clearly gave me this understanding, wow, you know, the more prominent the ego is, the less we even notice. Because the ego blocks our ears, blocks our intelligence. We can't hear, we can't understand. And it requires actually some little purification so we become perceptive enough to recognize that we become perceptive, we, we, we can be honest and introspective, you know, we can actually look within ourselves, oh, why am I saying this, why am I doing this, am I really trying to be a humble servant here, or am I just trying to bring attention to myself, you know, yes, it's a whole thing, it's a whole thing, my God, it requires deep internal work, you know, and actually, This already connects with the book of uh, sheltering relationships. Without having a mentor, we almost have no chance to even reflect ourselves because that's our position. As long as we have material desires and attachments, we can't actually objectively assess ourselves and, and see ourselves. We can't. Our vision of ourselves is foggy and clouded. So that's exactly why we need such trusting, sheltering relationship where we know this person has no interest except helping me in my spiritual journey. No interest, no emotional interest, no managerial interest, no financial interest. Only interest is my spiritual growth and development. Such a relationship is of the utmost importance. Otherwise, we can't even make advancement. And unless we sooner or later become such a person to others, you know, that we sacrifice our energy and uplift people and we, we guide them, we, we will remain conscious, completely self-centered. I have a lot of powerful, uh, quotes which clearly establish that. So on Saturday, please come and, and check out this, this discussion. But I can read you already one quote which I have here on the back of, of the book by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur in the book Amrita Vani. It's one of my favorite quotes in this regard. It says there, one who gives personal instruction to each and every one does more for others than the platform speakers do. Well, I'm a platform speaker here, you know, sitting on a platform and it means a lecturer. Generally, whatever platform speakers say cannot solve the problem of everyone in the audience, nor can it always benefit every individual. A person's defects are better rectified in a private tutorial class or private coaching than in hearing lectures in a school or college. I mean, interesting, Bhakti Siddhanta uses the word coaching. I mean, I thought that was really amazing, you know, that even so many years ago, he, he used that term coaching. And then he concludes, therefore, those who instruct particular persons separately 
can award them something more permanent. Wow. You know, so that one to one actually gives something more permanent than just giving lectures and having big audience. You know, we often judge the success of our preaching according to these external things. How many people attended the program? Oh, Kijai, fantastic. You know, and we think, we don't recognize, we don't remember that this one-to-one, we can actually give people something more permanent. And especially in regards to Ford's ego, we hardly even have a chance to dissolve the ego. When do you usually finish? Wow. Okay. So let me just, 8.30. Okay. So let me just, I want to just touch upon a couple of rules of Vaishnav etiquette in regards to the, to the false ego, which we often are not aware and mindful on. And of course, we don't have time to discuss them more deeply, but just as a bit of food for thought. Like the first rule of etiquette is that, as we know, eating, sleeping, mating, defending, they are the animal propensities. And we are meant to actually keep them to a bare minimum. And we know this about eating, sleeping, and mating, but we don't so much talk about defending. And when we talk about defending, we may only think about the gross physical defense, but there is also the subtle defense of verbal defense, talking back, you know, but, 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 you know, finding so many excuses. Oh, it wasn't me. Actually, it was like this and, 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 you know, or blaming others. That's a very common mechanism of defense. You know, blaming others. Oh, it was his fault. It was her fault. It was the circumstances. It was not my fault. The circumstances. So we, we have this defense mechanism so deeply in us. And what, what or who do we defend? The false ego. Because the false ego is so near and dear to us, we always protect and defend it. Vaishnava etiquette says, a Vaishnava should not defend him or herself. A Vaishnava should defend others if they're somehow unfairly treated or whatever, but not oneself. And I mean, what do we normally do? We do the opposite. We defend ourselves every day, almost. And when we see another devotee in in a uh, unwanted situation... We usually don't defend that other person. We just keep quiet or it might uh, reflect on my relationships or something and oh, why should I stick my head out here and say something? No, no, no. It's none of my business. So usually we do the opposite of what we should be doing. Uh, We should not defend ourselves. We should defend others. And there's so many powerful quotes in the Bhagavatam. I've collected them all. You know, where it says, even if a devotee is, you know, defamed, cursed, mistreated, neglected, or even killed, still, devotee never avenges himself. Yes, simply tolerates. I mean, tolerance in material life is considered to be a weakness. 
you know, what? You tolerate that? You can't stand up for yourself and defend? You know, that's, that's success in material life to defend. Whereas in spiritual life, no, to tolerate, that's glorious. To dissolve, because it dissolves the false ego. All big discussion, you know. Yeah. And then the second uh, rule of Vaishnava etiquette is that we should not feed our ego, being eager, you know, to oh, be recognized and glorified and be in the center and be in the front and, and, and. Instead of feeding it, we should dissolve it. So there's also, again, so many rules of Vaishnava etiquette that, for example, in regards to kirtan or speaking, leading kirtans, we should only lead kirtans when we are invited to do so. We should never push ourselves in the front, oh, it looks like it's my turn or something. No, no, no. Against Vaishnava etiquette. Wow, I learned all these subtleties in Bangladesh. They're, they're really following all these things, you know. Yes. Especially in the presence of seniors. Oh, it is considered so uncultured and gross. And oh my God, you know, to be keen to lead or something or to speak. No, no. You know, we should simply wait until we're invited. And if we're not invited, oh well, bad luck, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the whole thing. And I mean, just in, in, in regards to Kirtan, we can be a little introspective, you know, so often we get all upset, oh, I didn't get a chance to lead, and, 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 you know, and we are only satisfied when we can lead. Well, let's look a little deeper here, you know, if our satisfaction only is there when we can lead, it means our satisfaction is not coming from chanting the holy name, that's for sure. Because if it was coming from the holy name, then we wouldn't care less whether we lead or not lead. You know, then the, the satisfaction simply comes from chanting the holy name. But as long as we're so keen, oh, I have to lead, and otherwise the program was not successful because I didn't lead. Oh, well, here we go. Let's be honest. We're running after this ego satisfaction. Yes, yes, yes. And there's so many other rules of Vaishnav etiquette that we always let the seniors go first in whatever we do, even when we chant the verse. You know, the seniors should chant first, not the uninitiated devotees. Or taking Chanamrita, <clears throat> the seniors should go first. Or standing in the temple room, the seniors should be in the front. So these rules of etiquette all help us, you know, to... Dissolve our ego to keep ourselves a little bit in the background, you know, to become humble and not always try to be in the front and in the center and recognize and all these kind of things, you know. Yeah, so, but unfortunately, often we are not even so mindful of all these subtleties of Vaishnava etiquette and we don't even follow them. Very often devotees, you know, it's a whole big new thing for them that this verbal defense should not be done, even if we are accused wrongly or treated wrongly. Actually, Vaishnav mood is, okay, never mind, this time I was wrongly chastised, but let me accept it as an opportunity to give up my false ego. Yes, that's actually the mood, you know, and not answering back, but, but, hang on, oh, 
Ja, nein, 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 uh, it is, it is so uncultured actually. So and in this way, because we don't follow these Vaishnava etiquette and cultural aspects more strictly and deeply, we don't even know them or understand them. That's why very easily we maintain our ego by protecting and defending it and by feeding it and blowing it up. You know, and then we are surprised that we're not really getting anywhere in our devotional life. You know, uh, yeah. So anyway, especially since in the purport it says dissolves the stubborn false ego. False ego, very stubborn because we've been carrying it with us for so many lifetimes. Not so easy, you know, to get off these ego patterns of behaviors. Yeah, it requires a whole internal work and paradigm shift and wow, you know, yeah, not so easy, not so easy. Okay, my time is up. Do we have any comment, any question? Yes, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Um, so you, you see a lot of the um, lessons that you said we should learn, many of those things are usually more prominently learned in an ashram. Like if someone has joined an ashram, like one of the you know lessons, you, you learn all these things, and without that ashram setting, you're basic, a person is basically not putting themselves in the position of being a student. For example, if a, if a brand new person comes here, or a person who's been coming for a, a couple of years, they do something that is not the right etiquette, Generally, the etiquette is not to tell them because you're not their teacher. Yeah, they're not. They have not put themselves in the role of a student. And you know, one of the etiquettes for treating devotees and new devotees is not to you know yes to or jump or, with them you know, and correct them all the time. Yes, and so you have the the situation is that there's less and less ashram experience, so people yes. don't learn these lessons at all. Uh, That's very true, but I dare say even in the ashram, these lessons are often not not really uh, learned. You know? But that, that's that's the only place I see it addressed at all. Though. Like, huh? That's the only place I see it addressed. Well, this, like, I mean, not defending. I, did, I was four years in the ashram. I didn't learn that in the ashram. You know, that was one, one I mean, a little bit of ego beating we get in the ashram, definitely. But um, nevertheless, I mean, whether in the, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a Brahmacharya ashram or Grihastha ashram, the point is we have to train our devotees. Yeah. And that can also happen in the Grihastha ashram. That's why I'm making this humble attempt of putting these courses together and putting them in book form. Actually, this year, I want to put that false ego course in book form. I want the, to work the, on that this year, just so the knowledge gets out more easily, you know. The mentorship you mentioned, that that's also putting yourself in the role of a student. Exactly. Uh, and, that's uh, why we do need mentors. doesn't matter which ashram we are, you know. But it's true. I mean, in the Brahmajai, Brahmajarini ashram, we have more chance of of getting that training and I also say for example to the ladies when if they are young and they can spend some time in the ashram I always say to them 
Better you false ego gets a little bashed and, and dissolved in the Brahmacharini ashram rather than in married life. So if you get that, you know, that, that ego uh, dissolving uh, training in the ashram that spares you marriage relationship. But if you don't get it in the ashram, well, then you're going to have all these ego battles in your marriage and you might uh, break your relationship. So better to get it before. <laughs> I always try and encourage them like that to at least spend six or twelve months in an ashram situation and work under senior guidance. You know, even that is these days for many people a big challenge just to accept authority and accept instruction and do as somebody senior tells you to do. I mean, that's just the gross part of dissolving the ego, you know. Because, I mean, I often travel with assistants. You know, sometimes, my God, I see myself in that situation. That girls, you know, they're 30 years younger than me. They're, they're more than 30 years. I'm 30, more than 30 years in Krishna consciousness, longer than them. But still, my God, they think they know it all better. And they want to do it their way. And, you know, even that is these days so difficult for people to, to learn. What to speak of all the subtleties of not defending and, and not feeding the ego. I mean, that's pretty subtle, you know. So, but, I mean, we are meant to learn it in all ashrams, you know. And, yeah, by having a, a mentor, that's one, uh, that's why I was saying, without... A mentor, we can hardly even do this internal work because we need somebody who helps us to assess ourselves. And it's mainly in regards to the ego, you know. Yes. Uh. Uh, Bhakti Nandatirta Swami, when he spoke in Portland, he made that same point that we have to find, somehow get that uh, relationship of, of being mentored. Yes. Uh, otherwise, yes. it doesn't go progress. Yes. Yes, and I mean, even in the in the secular world and the professional world, this is a well-established fact that if we want to become successful in anything, whether it's sports or music or, or business, we have to have a coach, somebody who is already more successful than we are and who shows us the path to success. I mean, even out there, it's a, it's a well-understood fact. But somehow, uh, yeah, we seem to... Not really deeply understand it. And, and we may think, oh, the Diksha Guru is that person, but no, the way we practice at the moment our Diksha Guru system, you know, we may only see our Diksha Guru once or twice a year. They may have thousands of disciples. They cannot possibly know each and every disciple's personal situation in practical life, you know. And also a mentor should be a little more on a daily level present to see how is the person practicing his sadhana, his service mood, his cooperation with other devotees. From far away, we cannot really see this, you know. So um, just to have Diksha Guru is definitely not enough to actually make progress. That's very clear. I mean, we have lost so many devotees over the last 50 years because of this fact, you know. And if we don't have this sheltering relationships, then easily we take shelter of our false ego. That's where we take shelter. We get offended. Oh, they didn't treat me properly. And oh, I was right. Everybody else was wrong. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to go to the temple anymore. 
I mean, this happens all the time, you know. Yes. And we just lose that person because they take shoulder of their false ego. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. I was listening to a lecture from uh, Jai Jagannath Peru, who's he's, he's in the Bhakti Center in New York. He's from Brahmachari from Chicago. Okay. And he was talking about the um, the byproduct of uh, the uh, broken families growing up, at, like in in the Western culture, growing up in America. The byproduct of a person having daddy issues or having not really seeing their father is that. Uh, because pretty much a lot of people, their their parents are divorced. The the byproduct of that is that there's a natural skeptical mood towards authority. Yeah. That we we have very a very true. hard time. We're we 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 doubt authority of. Um, we're very skeptical of their authenticity or their. Yeah. their um, oh yeah. I mean, we are so traumatized in all different ways. You know. Yes. That's that's the whole thing, you know. So, and all these impressions are there in the subtle body, you know, mind, intelligence, false ego. We carry all these kind of uh, traumatizing impressions with us. This all has to be dissolved. This all this luggage we are carrying, we have to throw it overboard if we want to go back to Galaga Vrindavan. We can't possibly go with all these kind of issues and things. You know, yeah, it's, and that's why it is so important to establish stable, healthy families. My God, you know, yes. I mean, unless we can establish that, you know, our society will, will struggle with so many things, you know, yes. yes. And sometimes people might be so traumatized they actually need some professional help. You know, even though as we were saying, the process of bhakti targets the subtle body. And a lot of things clear off just by time passing and by practicing seriously. But then sometimes people come from such dysfunctional backgrounds, you know, of all kinds, you know, abuse and, and this and that and so many things, that they can't even practice peacefully, you know. And then people need definitely professional help just to help you know, uh, dissolving things a little bit, you know, so that people can actually apply themselves in a in a in a more deeper way to the process. So it's a whole it's a whole issue, and as as Kali Yuga progresses, society will become more and more dysfunctional. You know, so yeah, we have to set something against this. You know, we can't allow all these dysfunctional things enter Lord Chaitanya Sankirtan movement. And 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 part of the solution is really is built to culture Krishna's divine system. That's how I like to see, you know, Vaishnav culture. It's Krishna's system to give us stability and harmony. And then we can really show the world how you with civilized cultured human life is meant to be lived. You know? Where the men are true men and they play their roles and the ladies are true ladies and they play their roles and everything is in harmony and balance and, and everything is great, you know, and everybody's joyful, you know. Yeah. Okay, let's end on this note. Thank you kindly. Shalapapadaki,